listening to America's Web Radio. And now time for the Classic Car Show with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio and the Classic Car Show. And we've got Mr. Steve Ronaldo at the round table. And at the uh, coffee table, we've got Mr. James Dunst with uh, Bell Performance. And at some table, if he's not, he may be laying his head down on the table at this point. We have Jim Weber somewhere up north if the uh, Yankees haven't captured him. Captured him and kept him. Who knows? But anyway, we've got uh, Mr. Dunce on today, and uh, James and Steve, and I will throw in one word every now and then, maybe, but they're going to be talking carburetors and the uh, evolution of going from carburetors to fuel injection and why and what we have to look forward to. So with that being said... Welcome, Mr. Dunce. We appreciate you showing up today and being with us and uh, filling in for Baldy, old, old Bald Eagle. Thank you very much. I enjoy being here. Hey, Jim, Steve, how you doing? Good, good. Yeah. Well, anyway, this is an, an interesting subject. It's also a very complex subject, the fuel injection stuff. Um, it's been around a long time, fuel injection. A lot, lot longer than most people think. I think most Americans, and I think you'll agree with me, agree that the first popular fuel injection was the one that General Motors used in the the early mid '50s, the uh, uh, Rochester fuel injection stuff. I think that's where where most most of us got our our first to do anything to do with fuel injection came with those cars. And the thing that's different now with the electronics, you have the control over the fuel injection, which we'll talk about in, in, in a little bit. But it's far better today than it was back then. Oh, heavens, yeah. The, uh, you know, those things, uh, they were mechanical, and they were timed. They had to be timed. And they actually very seldom worked well at all. And one of the misconceptions, especially with the Chevy guys, thinks that, well, you know, fuel injection was done for performance. It actually wasn't. Uh, being perf- being a performance modification is sort of a uh, oh, I don't know uh, after effect. They did it uh, for fuel economy uh, first, and then they realized, hey, you know, we got something here that might get us a little more power out of stuff. So it was a if a fuel uh, it was a fuel economy device first, and then now has turned back in those days turned into the the uh, uh, thing that we, you know, for performance, and most of the guys, like, you know, I'm the l- a little older than me, would, would take the fuel injection. I remember when guys had that Rochester fuel injection. They'd take it off and put two fours on. It just never worked well. <laughs> well, you know, fuel injection was around before the 50s, too, because oh, yeah. World, War II, World War II, the fighter planes were fuel injected. Because I guess a carburetor wouldn't too work too well if you turned a plane upside down. Well, that and plus the higher the altitude. That's correct. Yeah, the higher the altitude, the 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 mixtures change drastically, and there was no really good way to control it. So it's 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 been around. We were we had a Zorus Dunktoff at an AACA national meet, and for those of you who don't know, he's called the father of the Corvette and every other thing. 
and he was talking to us about the the early Rochester fuel injection. He's the one that told me, yeah, it was done for for fuel economy. And then we realized we had a way to make some some real power out of this thing. But I don't know. I guess that's the first one. And then the Europeans, I think, made more use of it than we did. Uh, They took diesel mechanical fuel injection and modified it and... and, uh, uh, put it on passenger cars. My wife's Mercedes t- two two thirty SL she had was a mechanical fuel injection mm-hmm. system. What a pain that thing was to deal with. Yeah. Well, you know, if we could, if we could, I, I, I got a progression here. You know, where we started and where we are now, and the the, the carburetor thing uh, came with a lot of problems. You know, carburetors were used all the way from the early, uh, you know, back in nineteen oh five, nineteen oh six, and they were very simple things. Uh, simply a venturi that when air rushes by it, it draws fuel into the engine. The faster the air goes through, the more fuel it uh, adds. But there were so many issues and problems. Uh, if you didn't warm the car up, you, you'd end up with hesitations and stalling. Uh, in the wintertime, uh, you know, I'm from Wisconsin originally, and I remember it was 21 below zero. And if you didn't catch that just right... Uh, you end up flooding the engine. You have to pull the spark plugs out, and clean all the fuel off in order to get it running. So there were there were there were a lot of issues with that. Fuel economy was poor. Uh, when you developed uh, vacuum leaks, uh, whether it be from hoses or, or, or manifold gaskets, uh, anytime you have a vacuum leak, you end up with a hot lean mixture, and the carburetor had no way to correct that. And that's why uh, I grew up doing valve jobs doing valve jobs and, and when I was working in the garage uh, back in the uh, late 60s and early 70s if you if you got uh, 12,000 miles on a set of spark plugs that was a lot yeah and uh, but what used to drive me nuts uh, is uh, these rebuilt carburetors where you buy a rebuilt and the problem is still there today if you have a piece of equipment that uh, needs a rebuild rebuilt carburetors are actually done on piecework. Uh, I talked to a builder one time, and he said what they do is they accumulate the cores, and when they get enough of them, they bring a crew in, and then they pay them so much for each one they, they put together. And the quality of what they do is terrible. And I've gone through as many as three, four carburetors until I have a good one. Oh, I agree with I agree with you. Yeah, that that was the big issue with carburetors. Everything is 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 fixed. There's absolutely no variation allowed. They're just it the the jets and the stuff are all the same. Uh, and, and if you look at, at carburetor history, at the one that's the most famous is the fish carburetor. Have you ever heard of that one? That one I have not. Yeah, that was the famous one in the, the 20s and, and 30s. It's supposed to get you 100 miles to a gallon, according to their advertising and, and popular mechanics <laughs> and popular science. But that's a stole standard. You do see them every now and then. They're collector's items if you, if you can find one. But well, that, that, whole, that whole thing about 100-mile carburetors, we used to hear that. Yeah. And uh, I used to hear uh, people told me, well, the oil companies discovered the guy who, who came up with these things, and they had him uh, killed, and, yeah, you know, or that, they bought up the patent. Oh, yeah, that. yeah, but, all those goofy stories, yeah. But, you know, what it boils down to is, is there's only so many BTUs in a gallon of gasoline. In present technology, you're only going to get so, so many miles per gallon uh, with the engines that uh, that they had, and that would never happen. They would never get 100 miles per gallon. That was all uh, all a big myth. And if it were true, if you could get 100 miles per gallon, you could do it now. 
because of electronic fuel injection, you can actually control that air fuel ratio, and you can put it right at the edge of lean misfire, and sure. uh, get and you still can't get a hundred miles per gallon. <laughs> well, that was what Mister Fish said, and he, he was very famous. That, that that that's a really really weird story. But you know, being an old car guy and having the old cars I have, it, you, one of the things you mentioned was heating it up. The Model T. Even though that's a small engine uh, and very low horsepower, um, had a a, uh, a manifold heater on it that put air, hot air when it sucked in through the when the air came in through the through uh, the the uh, carburetor to heat it up. Even even Model Ts re- the, they mm-hmm. back then in 1909 they realized they have to do something and a lot of them had that and the Ts had a, a, a hot stove thing that put hot air into the into the carburetor inlet side. Well, I had a, I had a 17 T and it had a little shroud that went over the exhaust manifold yep. that went down to the carburetor. Sure. That actually uh, heated that up and you know that that uh, sort of thing was happening all the way into the 70s. Uh, 60s and 70s, they had shrouds like that to draw in. If, if you remember on the on the air cleaners, they had a little flapper valve on the inside. Sure. And when when the engine was cold, they would draw the air from down below across the in, the exhaust manifold. And then when the uh, engine warmed up, it would go ahead and open and would draw in outside air. Absolutely, yeah. And another thing that was done way back then, my 37 Cadillac, and this has been a huge problem with the ethanol gas and all this other stuff because of the low pressure points and boiling points. On my Cadillac, there's a crossover right under the carburetor, under the intake that runs exhaust, and it gets hot, and boy, you turn it off, and it just empties the carburetor of all the gas. It just boils it out. Mm-hmm. And that was another way to try to stop it. A lot of cars had that crossover or a hot par- exhaust, at least some kind of a, something under under the carburetors to to try to over overhaul, you know, to overcome this problem. Yeah, it used to drive me crazy because it would get all carboned up. I mean, they used that all the way up into the 60s and 70s all Sure. Where they run the uh, hot air across the base of the carburetor. Oh, absolutely. You, you always had to clean the carbon out of those. But, you know, another thing that, that uh, used to drive us crazy is the dieseling problem of run-on. People call it run-on, where you shut the engine off, but it keeps on going. Sure. And, and it's because of a hot spot on the uh, uh, top of the piston or in a valve, and it ignites the fuel. As long as that piston or those pistons are, are going up and down, it's going to keep drawing air in and keep drawing fuel in. And... Uh, you had, to, you had to adjust that idle way down. They used to have these uh, solenoids so that when you turned the key off, it would actually close the throttle sure. uh, to prevent that. But that was that was crazy. Oh, there have been and, a lot of things tried because of the big problem. Carburetor is a fixed, whatever it's set at, whatever the jets are, it it's fixed, and it, they can't vary anything. Uh, so I, one time, just kind of a funny aside story, at Hershey, uh Glenn Knighty used to always do the race car certification, and he came over and he said, there's a guy here with an Offenhauser Sprinter, and he's an old guy, and he can't drive it. Will you drive his car for certification? And I said, give me think about that for about a millionth of a second. So that was really fun. 
But with those things running, nitromethane and LK, alcohol and what they had, you had to get it warm before you even tried to move it because that thing mm-hmm. would not move an inch. It turned the carburetor into a block of ice. Sure. Yeah, weird stuff, weird stuff. And, you know, then, then along comes uh, ethanol. Well, back in the 70s, they called it gasohol. And uh, the things that we noticed uh, in working on the carburetors and, and vacuum hoses, you'd squeeze the vacuum hose and they'd stick together, or it would swell uh, like on the accelerator pump in the carburetor, it would swell that up. And in some cases, the alcohol would actually dissolve the float. And I've seen hollow floats, the plastic hollow floats, yes, uh, where they're full of fuel. Oh, sure. And I remember, I remember taking one out, and I set it on the table, and it sat there for months, and the fuel was still in it. How it got in there and it's not coming out is beyond me. Magic. Yeah, magic. Ma- magic. <laughs> must, must be. But uh, the other thing that, that uh, it does, the ethanol, it actually dissolves aluminum over time. And a, a lot of technicians, they'll see a, a white powder inside the uh, carburetor, and uh, that's uh, aluminum oxide where the uh, carburetor is actually dissolving. And if they leave it sit for a long period of time, um, when they start it up, that stuff starts to move around and plugs the jets, and then it won't run. Yep. With with that being said, we're going to have to take our first break on America's Web Radio and the Classic Car Show. We'll be back with Steve Ronaldo and James Dunst right after this. On America's Web Radio, talking to you about anti-car insurance. Uh, In this hobby uh, that I've been part of for years, not all insurance companies and insurance coverage is the same. I would suggest that you call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com to find out some information about some of the best anti-car insurance you can get, such as agreed value. Uh, insurance for your classic car. Again, if you're, when you get ready to, to, uh, insure your classic, classic, antique, or even your street ride, call JC Taylor Insurance or visit jctaylor.com. My name is Kyle Hayes, a motorsports student at Alfred State College. Every year, Alfred State students compete in the Great Race, which is a cross country time endurance rally for vintage vehicles. As you can imagine, it's pretty costly. I'm asking for your help. Your donation can make it possible for these students to live their passion and promote the vintage automobile industry. Please visit our site at give.alfredstate.edu and search Great Race to learn more and help us reach our goal. Thank you. This is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour, on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Join me as I talk with passionate professionals on a program that profiles the best businesses, business professionals, business practices, and fascinating individuals to get an insider view of how America works, 10 to 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 
And we're back on America's Web Radio and the Classic Car Show, show with uh, Steve uh, Ronaldo and poor Jim Weber's out somewhere walking the dog, I think. Or no, he's out in Kansas working, come to think of it. And uh, he may get rained on a little bit. But anyway, and we have down in Florida, we have Mr. James Dunce, who's with Bell Performance. And uh, we're glad to have James filling in today for Mr. Weber. And we appreciate it. And what I remind everybody, if you don't have car insurance or you're looking to get a classic car, there's only one place to look, and that's J.C. Taylor. And if you're going to transport that car from some place to another place, there's only one place to call there, and that's Passport Transport. And tell them that uh, you got their name or you were listening to America's Web Radio and the Classic Car Show and decided to... Do what we suggest. Call and find out about them. Let them give you a quote. You'll uh, be glad you did, and uh, Steve will testify to the fact that J.C. Taylor is the insurance company to use. So with that said, let's get back to the show and talking about carburetors and fuel injection. Yeah, if I could uh, add a couple more things on carburetors. Um, One of the things that drove me crazy on these carburetors or rebuilds it's the throttle shafts that wear out in the carburetor base itself. And when that happens, you can never adjust the idle to get them to idle smooth because they were leaking air in uh, through those shafts. And uh, when I purchased rebuilt carburetors, a lot of times they were wore out when I got them. And that's why <laughs> yeah. I said earlier, you know, I had to go through several carburetors. My rule of thumb was and if I couldn't rebuild it, I would try to buy a new carburetor, but I would not buy a rebuilt. But uh, another interesting point... I used to be the media spokesman for the Glidden Tour when I worked for AAA. I used to travel around with them. And the number one problem was fuel problems and usually had something to do with, well, the car sat most of the winter and they take it out for the tour and that um, stuff starts moving around inside that carburetor and plugging up jets, and then they had uh, breakdowns. But fuel was the number one problem on that tour, yeah. fuel problem. Oh, yeah. I, we've already signed up for the Glidden this year. It's in It's in Rock Hill. South Carolina, so it, it sold out almost immediately. And yeah. uh, I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed that tour because I rode with a different driver every day and and uh, yeah, helped them. They, they had other problems too. They had a lot of electrical problems with their shorts, and uh, we had a couple near fires up by Birmingham one time. And, and uh, it's just some of the cars sitting for long periods of time and then poor uh, restoration jobs. You know looking at wiring and so forth. But anyway, I, w- I want to move on. Uh, in, in the mid-1970s, I went to the catalytic converters, and uh, that's when they went to, got did away with the leaded fuel. And it was interesting because I was working for Ford at that time, and they said that um, we were going to see valve jobs as common as tune-ups going to the leaded fuel. And that never happened. Actually, it got better going to unleaded fuel. But... Uh, they went to catalytic converters, and the problem with that is they had, they, catalytic converters work at a certain air fuel ratio, which is basically 14.7 to 1, 14 parts of air, one part of fuel. And so they had to have a way to keep that. So they went to what they call a feedback carburetor. Feedback carburetor, it's got a mixture control solenoid inside the carburetor, and it uses a, there's a computer in the car or truck, and then there's an oxygen sensor. And based on what the computer sees, it either adds fuel or takes fuel away. If it sees rich, it goes lean. If it sees lean, it goes rich. And uh, 
it, they they worked pretty good, but again, you ended up with all that rebuilding, and uh, you had to know how to set everything in there. The solenoid, there was certain adjustments. There was a kit that you had to have in order to make those adjustments. And a lot of a lot of technicians had a lot of problems with those. Well, they were very very complicated. The, the feedback carburetors were unbelievably complicated. Uh, they were just 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 difficult because we had them. At American Honda, when I had the t- was running the tech center there, and then uh, we had them in the beginning at Hyundai at the the tech center, uh, and and before they came with the first fuel injection. But yeah, for example, the one that I remember the most is a '78 high altitude Hondamatic station wagon CVCC. It had 88 emission control hoses under the hood. <laughs> wow. Oh, that, that, but see, when that stuff started, in uh, was voluntary compliance with California in 70. Uh, and then what was the 70 uh, levels became mandatory in 75. So there was a period of about Pretty close to ten years, people had, but nobody knew what to do. Everybody, there was a tremendous learning curve, and I can tell you those feedback carburetors were unbelievable. And then, of course, all the emission stuff we didn't, we can just throw that in. There were so much misconceptions and misunderstanding, and nobody knew what that did. And the government did a horrible job in explaining it to was everybody. That, was that supposedly to clean it even more if it fed <laughs> back and? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's there's a stoichiometric balance to a carburetor, and that means that it's running as good as it can be. If I remember right, it's either thirteen point seven or fourteen point seven or something. Anyway, yeah, fourteen point seven to one. Yeah. Anyway, and that's with the optimum you're trying to achieve the best drivability with the lowest emissions, and this was the target. And the, these things were just crazy. Uh, you. you Nobody could do anything with them. I got to thinking if there were 88 hoses for that one in California today, there's 288. No, there's less. <laughs> there's far, far less. They're much simpler now than they were. Uh, much simpler. And then, and then when the, when the, in 75, when the 70 levels from EPA became mandatory, then then there was the first of the giant changes. And I'm sure Jim will agree was the... the uh, Advent of the the uh, throttle body fuel injection, which was a modified carburetor with a huge fuel injector sprayer <laughs> inside of it. Weird looking thing. They worked, but they were just again they were very fussy. Those things. Yeah, that that was actually it was the next thing I was going to mention there. And what that was is it was a transition between feedback carburetors and a multi point fuel injection. And I think my own personal. Uh, if I think the reason they used that, it, it was like a carburetor. And it sat on uh, top of the intake manifold, and it, just, it either had one injector or two injectors. And uh, it, it worked like the uh, feedback carburetor, where if it saw rich, it went lean. If it saw lean, it went rich. And it tried to maintain that 14.7 to 1. But I think they did that because they had a lot of parts and manifolds and, and things like that. Uh, where they were transitioning to the multiport, because on the multiport, it changes the manifold design and all of that. But, you know, some of the things that happened when they went to that uh, uh, type of fuel injection is the cold starting went away. You didn't have any problem there. 
you didn't have a choke anymore uh, because the computer would read the engine temperature and it would hold the injectors open longer when the engine was cold to keep it running. So that uh, that was a plus. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and then you didn't have a choke to maintain and constantly having to adjust and so forth. Uh, the valve jobs went away because uh, if you spun a vacuum leak at that point, the computer saw this lean condition, which is hot, and it would just richen it up. And if it couldn't fix the problem, it would turn the check engine light on, and then you go get it fixed. So you hardly ever see valve jobs anymore. No. And uh, yeah. spark plugs, they last 100, 150,000 miles. Uh, because you don't have the heat melting the electrodes on the on the uh, uh, spark plugs, plus you have the non-leaded fuels, which doesn't doesn't have the deposits. I changed them on my truck. My truck has three hundred and seventy-eight thousand miles on it right now, and I, the last time I changed the spark plugs, it had they had one hundred and sixty-five thousand miles on them, and they weren't bad. I just thought it was time to go ahead and change them. So there were definitely uh, some advantages, and then the third thing is the engine life increased because when you have lean conditions, it takes the tension out of the piston rings. And if it does that, you start consuming oil. Oil starts getting by the rings, and uh, you start to go downhill. So there were a lot of advantages when they went to that. But I worked in the dealerships at the time, and technicians had a real problem transitioning from carburetors. A lot of the guys were older guys, and you know they looked at this new uh, fuel injection as something very foreign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it really it really was a uh, those times. Like I'd go in and turn my. We didn't have computers. We had terminals at the desk, and there'd be stuff from EPA that was just amazing. Uh, that, that nobody understood uh, what it did. And then the cold start injectors. You mentioned those things. Uh, I at that time my first job was with, with running the tech center here for Leyland, and. We used cold start injectors on British cars, and and on a lot of the early Japanese cars, where those things were just they just failed by the bushel basket full. Those cold start injectors, uh, the riching it up for starting, they were always a problem. But you know things change and evolve, and pe- yep. it was it was a learning process. Nobody knew what to do. The government was throwing these rules out to an industry that never had those kind of rules before. And in 80, when the the first big bump of the emission stuff happened in 80, that's when it just, for example, uh, a lot of the, the, especially European car companies, went away. Uh, You could hardly find, for the next few years, you could hardly find a Mercedes-Benz that wasn't, wasn't a diesel car because they had no idea what to do with this stuff in Europe because they were 10 years behind what the U- where the U.S. was. Yeah. You know, another another thing that went away was the run-on or dealing problem when you turn off the ignition. Because on fuel injection, when you turn that key off, there's no more fuel being pumped to the injectors. Yes. So that, yeah. that totally went away. But what was interesting on the cold start, and... Uh, uh, I was in Detroit back in 1994. They had the coldest temperature uh, that they had ever had. It was 23 below zero. And I had a Ford Aerostar that I rented at the airport. I went out in the morning. Now, if it was a carburetor, you turn it over, you didn't catch it just right, you'd flood the engine. 
I turned that Aerostar over about three times. It turned over slow. It fired up, and I drove away. No hesitation, uh, nothing. And that was the first time I had started a vehicle in that kind of cold uh, that had fuel injection. And what a difference. Oh, yeah. All righty. With that, we're going to have to take our second break. You're listening to America's Web Radio and the Classic Car Show. By the way, if you have any questions for Steve or for James, uh, just uh, send james at americaswebradio.com or send an email to steve at americaswebradio.com, and they'll pass right through our computers right to uh, Steve and right to James. And we're happy to have you listening. Or if you're a Facebook Live watcher, you're watching Steve on right now, and soon you'll be able to watch James and Steve if we're if James is back on filling in for Jim, or if uh, Jim's here and we have all three of them on. You'll be able to watch all three, and also you can go to YouTube and watch. And uh, we ask that if you go to YouTube, you sign up, you subscribe to YouTube, or you follow us on Facebook. We'd appreciate it, and we'll be back right after these messages. Stay tuned. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. This is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour, on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Join me as I talk with passionate professionals on a program that profiles the best businesses, business professionals, business practices, and fascinating individuals to get an insider view of how America works, 10 to 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. And we do thank you for listening and for making America's Web Radio one of, if not the largest, producing podcast radio station in the nation. We uh, we really do uh, appreciate your support, and we appreciate those folks that decide they love what we're doing and just off the bat send us a donation. That's uh, fantastic, too. That. That helps pay for the lights on some of the shows that uh, are not sponsored, so we appreciate that as well. And uh, we certainly appreciate Passport Transport and J.C. Taylor. J.C. Taylor and Bob, they've uh, they've been with us for almost from the get-go, haven't they, yeah, Steve? Yeah, a long time. Yeah, and uh, they are the greatest of the great as far as insurance goes. So if you're thinking about insuring your cars, be it brand new or be it, uh, oh, by about as old as Steve and Jim are. Uh, that, that goes back to the turn of the 20th century, doesn't it? Uh, something like Pretty that. Pretty much. 
so, and I know it might feel it more every day. <laughs> I, I didn't realize Moses had a car, but I guess he must have. And and JC, if Moses had had a car, JC Taylor would have insured it. And I, I bet if I was Bob Wallace right now, I'd be uh, I'd be doing a little head scratching as that uh, as that uh, hurricane's coming towards New Orleans again. But uh, JC yeah. Taylor was there when Katrina hit, and they've been there for every disaster, and they are the greatest. So if you're looking for insurance, look to JC Taylor. With that being said, I'm going to shut up and turn it back over to Steve. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we, we sort of just went by fast was some of the early attempts at, at fuel injection other than the, the, uh, the, the, car, the modified carburetor. Uh, Bosch, Bosch had messed around with fuel injection for quite a while. And I, uh, the one that I always thought was the funniest was the one that the Porsche cars had, the CIS system. We used to call it the toilet bowl. Uh-huh. That, yeah. yeah, the big toilet bowl in the back. Yeah. It was really weird, that thing. But it worked. It was just hard to deal with. Uh, and uh, they had, and then they came with Motronic, right? What, what was the first one called, the CIS? There was, I'm before, not sure. Yeah, before Motronic. And Motronic was their uh, advancement. And a lot of the Europeans, especially high-performance cars, were running Bosch fuel injection systems. Okay, you guys, I'm going to put you on the spot, okay? James, uh, you're sitting at the table with Steve. We've got this thing in front of us that we think is going to be an engine or it's going to do something. We've had had a situation where we had the steam engine and pistons and so forth and the power and, and got even the steam locomotives out of it. But we're sitting around, or you all are sitting around at the table, and... We've got a contraption that we want to add gas to to make it fire and make it run. So how did how did those first people? They didn't have a CAD system. How did they come up with a carburetor? How are you all talking to find out that the carburetor is the the answer to uh, feeding fuel to the? Uh, well, he t- he told you, uh, Jim told you in the in the the beginning. It was uh, uh, worked on it. It worked on on air pressure because as it goes over a little a little hump in the carburetor called a venturi it creates a low pressure drop basic law of physics everything under high pressure moves to low pressure and the fuel that was in this thing was under atmosphere pressure and this was lower pressure and the air outside said i want to get to where the low pressure is and what had happened is the car the what we called a carburetor they weren't called carburetors back then said, okay, fine, all you have to do is push the gas out of the way. And that's how it started. Hmm. And what a design from there. Yeah, absolutely. How did they they know to put a float in a bowl? (laughs) You got to go back and ask Henry Ford or or Daimler uh, how they came up with that. There were a lot of... uh, Holly was a very, very early carburetor. There... If you go back, and a lot of the manufacturers manufactured their own car. For example, my Mac two-cylinder Maxwell has its own Maxwell carburetor. Uh, there, in the beginning of this stuff, it, nobody knew what they were. Everybody was trying all kinds of different things, and eventually, some of them, 
sort of won out and became the supplier and builder of carburetors. Carter, uh, you know, Holly. Uh, there was a few other ones that sort of just became. And if you Marvel was one. Gosh, there was all kinds of stuff <laughs> back in the day. Well, you know, the the next uh, next step in this thing, uh, they went to what they call multiport fuel injection. And multiport is where you have an, uh, an injector in the intake manifold at each cylinder. Well, the early versions of that, what they did is if you had a V6, it would fire all three injectors on a side all at one time. It would switch back and forth like that. Uh, so it wasn't it wasn't the most efficient. Uh, and then the, the early ones, the early ones, they had a lot of problem with injector plugging, where you had to do injector cleaning. And these injector cleaners that you buy at the... Uh, Part store. Most of them were not strong enough to clean those up. But through a bunch of injector design changes, especially with GM, they went to what they call a multi-tech, a multi-tech yeah. injector. And what it did is it moved the tip of the injector further up into the um, injector itself. And when people hear about dirty injectors, it, it's not, in most cases, internally. What happens is the fuel evaporates off the tip of the injector. It's just like putting water on a counter. When it evaporates, it leaves a residue behind. Well, the same thing happens with the fuel. And eventually that residue builds up on those tiny little orifices, and it blocks them. And uh, in order to clean them, you know, I used to have people used to say, what do I have to do, take them out and use a brush on them or something? No. You just have to run a powerful cleaner through the rail in order to clean those out. Since they changed the injector design, they don't have as many problems uh, like that anymore. But after that, they went to what they call sequential fuel injection. Sequential fuel injection is you got an injector at each cylinder in the manifold, and what it does is it fires right as the valve is opening, which is a little bit more uh, more efficient. Sure. uh, James, i got to ask you, is that that what gives the... um carburetor sound as you're going from one injector to two injectors to three injectors and that's air that's air I mean I love when I had my three deuces and you'd go from one to two to three and that sound was just absolutely gorgeous yeah Yeah, and the gas gauge went with them the one that was the best for that was the uh, uh, quadrajet with the two dime size primaries and the silver dollar size secondaries when those things open you could hear that go boy i bet gee that's putting a lot of gas in isn't it yeah that's why they yeah they only worked at high end and they made noise but like you were like you were saying that the the changes in the fuel injection when they started to become a lot more sophisticated i i i think every dealership and every tech back then was had the silver can to mix up the stuff and put it in and run it through the intake system to, to clean that stuff out. That was a good moneymaker for the guys in the shop, but it was essential. You bet. And I had I actually had some cars that when I put and you put directly into the rail, uh, OTC made a product, and uh, you put it directly into the rail. You could sit there and watch that engine smooth out as, sure. as it cleaned those injectors. And smoke. But, <laughs> yeah, but... But you know what happened? A lot of the technicians that were working for me, uh, they had problems because with diagnosing. Is it electrical? Is it an injector? Or is it an uh, electrical problem? Because both of them have the same symptom. Uh, if you have a miss, if you have a misfire, it can be an injector. It can also be a bad spark plug or a spark plug wire. And they had a hard time with that. But 
uh, in diagnosing injectors, you know, you have to prove out, first of all, the injector, uh, the injector is powered up all the time. Uh, what the computer does is it supplies the ground to the injector when it wants it to fire. So they have the, what they call noid lights. Noid lights is a little deal that you unplug the injector and you plug that thing into the harness, and as you roll the engine over or you're running it, you see that thing blinking. That proves that you do have power to that injector. Yeah, I uh, forgot about that, noid lights. That's an old term yeah. I haven't heard in years. Well, the other thing that works good in, in trying to find out where your problem is, see, usually electrical problem is usually under a load. If you've got a miss and it happens under a load, most of the time it has something to do with a coil uh, or ignition wire. But a, a nice, fast way to determine which cylinder is causing the problem is if you have one of these heat guns where you squeeze the trigger and it'll give you the temperature across the room or something on the other side. Sure. What you do, what you do is you just take that thing along the exhaust manifold. When you find the one that's cooler, you just found the cylinder where you missed it. Yeah, absolutely. That works pretty good. That yeah. works pretty good. And you can buy those things very inexpensive. I remember oh, yeah. when Raytech oh. first came out with those things, they were outrageously expensive. Now you you can go to Walmart and get one for 20, 25 bucks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, not like they used to be. But you're right. I, you're right that there was a lot of a lot of changes in the when it, when it went to the from the the uh, uh, old uh, first two porn injectors, uh, and that was the start of the onboard diagnostic stuff. It was mandated along with that, and it that's when the ones used to sit in there. Every manufacturer had their own, and you would. Some of you turn the key on, th- running, turn the key on and off three times, and a, and a light would blink, or you had to have a little gizmo that you plugged in that would blink and give you oh, some yeah. sort of a sequential code as to where the problem was. Uh, and if you had, and like you said, the, there was a lot of misunderstanding about this stuff. Well, uh, what drove me crazy is everybody had their own code. Yes. Well, in 1996, when they had the OBD2, where everybody got together and decided that whatever code number would be the same no matter what the car line. That was one of the best things that they ever did. And then they standardized the uh, plug-in for the computer so that uh, you didn't need to have a separate uh, scan tool for every different vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, it sure made it sure made life a whole lot easier. Uh, the uh, the uh, OBD1. The OBD and then OBD2, OBD2, the onboard diagnostic system, uh, was, like you said, one of the greatest innovations to help stuff. And now it it started with the fuel injection fuel management system and some ignition stuff, and now uh, there's a code for everything in your car. God, I don't think there's any component that doesn't have a code. Uh, anymore, and that's what the techs rely on. They go in and they plug in their their tester, and they get a code, and it and it and it it, it tells them what to do. And you can buy the average guy can buy an OBD2 code reader and find out himself. As long as you get the code, you can. And then once you get the code, like PO402, you can go online, and it'll tell you. Just look up. Put your make model year your car in, and you'll find out exactly what the problem is. So it's made it helpful for the average car person too. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah, no, I, unfortunately, those those codes 
doesn't always mean if it's code for an O2 sensor, it doesn't mean the O2 sensor is bad. It can be the reading is bad. It's yes. Or something. And these car parts stores, you know, they read the codes now and sell them parts like crazy um, by doing that. You know, I, I got to throw in a plug for Napa, as a matter of fact. Uh, in fact, Steve should remember I had a, uh, I think a Hyundai. I, I think it's a Hyundai. Uh, anyway, uh, the check engine light came on or some some mysterious light came on. And I didn't, you know, I was out of town and didn't know a dealer handy. And plus it was in the evening. And uh, Steve said, well, just run by a Napa store, and they'll be glad to come out and uh, find out what the code means. And it turned out to be nothing. But uh, anyway, uh, Napa was very kind. The, the gentleman I went in and I said, I've got a small problem. I don't know what the code means and or what the light means with check engine. And I don't know if it's something I should get pay attention to immediately and uh, I had a friend tell me that you all would put your tester on it and uh, they did and they were very kind and uh, said don't worry about it. It's the gas cap. You didn't tighten the gas cap. Yeah, or something. That's probably what it was. That's the number one light. They don't tighten the gas cap. Up. Could have been. I don't remember. Yeah. But uh, Anyway, I just, I'll just i put a plug in for Napa and uh, yeah. they're very courteous. Yeah. Very nice folks to deal yeah. with. Yeah. Now, the and as I'm sure Jim will tell you, that the fuel injection systems... James. James. Yes. Okay. We'll, we'll tell you that, that uh, uh, it's evolved into a two-pump system. Uh, it's, uh, you have a, a, a high pressure, you have a lower pressure pump in the tank. And it pushes the fuel forward, and then you have a high-pressure system, and some of these things are unbelievably high, uh, and they shoot the gas right into the cylinders. So, it, And that's what's gotten this huge horsepower increase. I mean, you have a little, little small engine that, that's, that's putting out 600 horsepower. Well, the other thing, it's called GDI, gas direct yeah. injection. And the, the biggest thing is they can control the emissions a whole lot better with that. But uh, this is that was my next uh, thing I wanted to talk about uh, because it comes with a whole bunch of problems. And recently they've made a, 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 a uh, came up with a solution. The problem with gas direct injection, first of all, the injectors are in the cylinders, so they get dirty quicker because they're right in there where the combustion is taking place. And uh, the other, the big problem is there's no gasoline washing the top side of the intake valve, so you end up with a, a buildup on the valves from the PCV gases coming out of the crankcase, uh, where normally the gasoline and detergent of gasoline would wash it off, on these GDI engines, they won't do that because the gasoline never touches them. And it builds up to the point where it affects the idle. And uh, the most common complaint is um, people are talking about rough idle. And when you do a code check, it's a random misfire code where it's moving around. And uh, when that happens, you got a real problem because the only way you can fix that, see, carbon reaches a point where you can't you can't use chemicals to get it off. It comes to a certain point where the only way you can get it off is you have to grind it off or you have to sandblast it off in order to get it off. And uh, when this happens, it, you have to pull the intake manifold. You got to pull all the rocker covers off and take the rocker arms off so the valves are all closed, and then they plug the valley in the center uh, with something, and they use a walnut blast where they actually blast it uh, to clean that out, which is a very, very expensive operation. 
And the problem is they don't tell you that when you buy the vehicle. And by the time you find out you have the problem, it's too late. Uh, there are some products. Uh, CRC makes a product that you spray behind the mass airflow sensor uh, at about 2,000 RPM. You let the vehicle sit for a half hour and uh, then run it. Which, uh, But you have to do that every 10,000 miles if you want to keep those valves clean. And Go ahead. Along the same line, uh, as a car gets older, and we've talked about this in the past, and uh, you get junk or crap or whatever you want to call it in your fuel tank, even though you have the fuel filters going into the injection, you can still have stuff pass through. So does that present a better or, or worse problem? You know, you know, the fuel filter is a micron size of a fuel filter. There's one micron. And there's not much, uh, to give you an idea how small a micron is, a human hair is roughly 100 microns. So a one micron gas filter, and, and i got to tell you, I'm, this truck I'm driving, it's a Ford Ranger. I have 378,000 miles on it. I changed the fuel filter once in 378,000 miles. So not much gets through there. Okay. That answers but, that. You know, but one thing, the other thing that happens on these GDI when they get older, when you start to get valve guide wear, you start to get valve seals that get brittle and hard, uh, that oil is going to come down the uh, valve guide, and it's going to sit on top of the valve, and then it's going to burn. And that's going to cause the buildup on the valve to even be greater uh, than just the PCV gases. But there's some fixes. I don't know if you ever heard of a catch can. You ever hear of that term? No, not me. No, a catch sure. can. The, the hose that goes from the PCV valve into the engine, the catch can is put in between. And what it does is the oil that's drawn out of the crankcase is actually deposited in that can instead of being drawn into the engine and burned. Uh, that, that's one thing that can be done. Uh, second thing is you gotta do, you gotta be religious on oil changes, uh, so that you don't get a lot of contaminants and things that generate fumes and so forth in the, in the, uh, oil. With, with and, that uh, message, we've got to take our last break. i let it run a little long. So we'll sure. be back with uh, Steve and James right after this. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. This is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour, on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Join me as I talk with passionate professionals on a program that profiles the best businesses, business practices, and fascinating business professionals to get an insider view of how America works. The Business Hour, from 10 to 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio, talking to you about antique car insurance. Uh, in this hobby uh, that I've been part of for years, not all insurance companies and insurance coverage is the same. I would suggest that you call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com to find out some information about some of the best antique car insurance you can get, such as agreed value. Uh, insurance for your classic car. Again, if you're, when you get ready to, to, uh, insure your classic 
classic, antique, or even your street ride. Call J.C. Taylor Insurance or visit jctaylor.com. And welcome back to America's Web Radio. And we're talking with Mr. James Dunst in Florida. He's with Bell Performance. And I want to remind everybody one more time, if you've got a question for Steve or Jim Weber or James, just uh, email Steve, Jim, or James, and uh, they'll get the uh, questions that you have, and we'll be glad to answer them on a coming show. So if you've got a carburetor question or any kind of question uh, about your car or classic car, just drop us an email, and we'll see if we can't get you the answer. So with that being said, let's get back to the show. You know, to finish what I was saying on the buildup, uh, the other place that buildup comes from is the EGR valve. EGR is the exhaust gas recirculation, and you have exhaust gases going through this valve, and it it it, it uh, gets a uh, gives a carbon buildup only on the valve and also on the EGR valve itself. And you know the best way to keep this clean, I'll put in a plug for Bell Performance. Bell Performance makes a product called Ethanol Defense. What it does is it protects those carburetors. Uh, from the problems that I talked about with the destruction of the internal components and the, and the uh, metal. And also it keeps the O2 sensor and the EGR clean, uh, which uh, makes a big difference. And Bell, Bell, I think, is one of the only products that guarantees that they work if you use it the way they tell you. But uh, the last thing uh, here, the, the, the most recent switch, and my, my wife bought a, uh, a 2017 Edge uh, 3.5, and it has this new feature. What they've done is they have two valves now, or I'm sorry, two injectors uh, for each cylinder. One of the injectors sprays directly into the cylinder. The other one sprays the top side of the intake valve. So they've, they've solved it, but it takes two injectors per cylinder. Well, I'm glad I'm retired. <laughs> I don't have to deal with it anymore. Yeah, it's very, very complicated and complex. You know, if you understand how they work, it's it's fairly simple. And once you understand the diagnostics and how to use a scan tool and how to interpret the information you get, and what I do is I get these questions from all over the world. What I do is I take the 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 code that's in there. Most of them don't know they got to have to give you a code, so they end up going to a parts store, getting the code, and they call me back or email me back. And what I do is I say, now what is the vehicle doing? So you got to kind of use some common sense and some of your own knowledge and compare what the code is saying versus what the driver is saying. And that could pretty well lead you to where the problem is. But it's pretty easy. But I think a lot of the older guys, they have a problem with this. A lot of them used to tell me, well, I'm glad I'm retiring. I don't want to deal with that. (laughs) I heard that more times than once. Yeah, yeah, it it, it changes. And I've been retired now 12 years and... Uh, things in electro- automotive electronics and uh, fuel management and all this stuff just continue to to advance at a, a ra- unbelievably rapid pace. The electronics have changed this industry tremendously. So, but you know, you know something interesting, and I used to teach a class on this. People used to think that if you had a Chevy, a Ford, or a Mercedes. Uh, and they feel injected that they're all different technologies. Basically, they're all the same. They all have the injectors. They all have a fuel regulator. They all have a fuel pump. They all have a rail, and they all have injectors. And they work the same way. And uh, when people start, when technicians start to look at it that way, 
it's, it's a little less scary because they're looking at the same thing. The, the parts look a little different, but it basically is the same system. Yeah, for for yeah, the the theory, the basic theory, yes. Yeah, it's just the variance is the way other ma- every manufacturer applies the basics to their particular product. So who knows? Who knows what's next? I don't know, but I can definitely tell you that I like driving my white sport itch. The thing flies. <laughs> yeah, they do go fast. I you know it's it's amazing how how durable and how fast and and. The, you know, even the big Dodge Hemi that we tow the car trailer with, that 375 horsepower, I'm getting 12, 13 miles to a gallon pulling an enclosed car trailer. Yep. And that never happened in the past, that's for sure. Yep. Well, one thing I'm glad of is I'm not working as a technician or mechanic now because they're a lot harder. Now, it's not technically hard. It's physically harder. They pack those things in there under the hood to where you can't get at anything. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, that's the part that would drive me crazy right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're, 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 these guys have a tough, tough deal, and you know, you're paying. You're paying. The everybody says, "Well, it costs so much." You're paying for knowing how <laughs> to fix it. <laughs> that's yep. the big issue: knowing how to fix yep. it. What well, so, good point? Yeah. Good point. Oh, yeah. You're you're paying for know-how. How to get to that sucker? Yeah, uh, and what the problem is. That's, you know, at this point it's almost, as our friend Lowell will tell you, it's getting harder and harder for the independent garage to stay in business. Yep. Because of the equipment required and the knowledge and, you know, the factory guys, the dealership guys have access to, you know, their own tech line people and all of this that are in the engineering staff and stuff. Where they, where the, where you know, Joe's garage can't doesn't have that ability. Yep. So that's part of it, I reckon. Yeah. But anyway, um, with that being said, gentlemen, we're going to have to put, as Jim would say, uh, Jim Weber, that is, we're going to have to put the plug in the jug. We want to thank Mr. James Dunst in Florida with Bell Performance for. Filling in for Mr. Weber today, and I, I thought this was a very enlightening show. And for the folks that uh, were listening to it as it was happening, I'm sure they got their money's worth out of it. And we invite anybody and everybody to go to Facebook Live, our page, America's Web Radio, and you can watch uh, Steve play with the uh, headphone cord and uh, watch Steve do everything <laughs> from our uh, Facebook Live camera and uh, also with YouTube. And very shortly, we'll have it where uh, we'll be watching James if uh, if he wants to do it. And uh, we appreciate all the listeners that tune in to America's Web Radio. And we've got more great shows coming out through the weekend, so stay tuned. And thank you for listening to America's Web Radio. James, thank you very much for being with oh, us you're today. you're welcome. Uh, thanks, Anytime. James. See you. Thank you, Steve. Mm-hmm. All right. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.